why can't I just let this stuff go? Why can't I just let my mother's mean comments just kind of roll away and not internalize them, you know? And I really tried for a long time to do that, but probably because of my own mental health issues, I was not able to do that. So in the ideal world where everyone's like 100% mentally healthy and strong and tough, maybe we wouldn't have estrangement, but that's not the real world. I, lady, Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules and decide to not just let this stuff go. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline, and that was Harriet Brown describing a type of breakup that you're not supposed to talk about or even really consider. And you're definitely not supposed to tell the whole world about it like Harriet did in her book, Shadow Daughter, A Memoir of Estrangement. I actually did not want to write this book. (laughs) (laughs) I distinctly did not want to write it, and I didn't want to write it for a long time. And then at some point, I felt like I have to write it because this is something that we don't talk about. You know, really, the impetus for writing the book was so other people didn't feel alone with their horrible estrangement stories. And so they knew, like, hey, this doesn't make you a freak and it doesn't make you a evil person and it doesn't mean that you're incapable of love. It means you reacted in this way in this situation for reasons that are probably good ones for you. And Caroline, it might also mean that you're Meghan Markle and your father actively gossips about you in the press. Mm. Like... So it's fairly common to hear about celebs parting ways with their parents to various degrees, like, you know, Beyonce firing her dad as her manager. I mean, young Carrie Fisher had such a fraught relationship with her mother that it became the movie Postcards from the Edge. Can't recommend that movie highly enough. Honestly, though, parental estrangement is a stars, they're just like us situation because it happens to plenty of us regulars, too. Except it's even more taboo. So this episode, Harriet's breaking the silence on mother-daughter breakups and what ultimately led her to call it quits herself. And later, we'll hear from Jackie Sajiko. She's a new mom who worries about replicating the mother-daughter relationship she grew up with and recently ended. It was such a scary word for me for so long. Because I think it was like, like, if I say this, I'm estranged. Like, I'm acknowledging that something terrible has gone down. But, like, everyone that I've talked to and it like varies like sometimes it is like some something bad has happened but like for a lot of people it's kind of like a relief like it's something that makes them able to be who they are and like function and like not be like a total mess (laughs) Um, which is good (laughs) get ready because it's all to find out what happens when daughters break up with their moms So, Kristen, when I was prepping for this episode, two big things surprised me. Okay, what's that? Okay, thing number one, breaking up with a parent is actually pretty common. Like, the stats aren't airtight, but at least in the U.S. and the U.K., an estimated 10 to 20 percent of folks experience some kind of family estrangement. And thing two? Well, because of how common it is, I was expecting there to be a ton of research on who, what, where, when, why it happens, you know, like— 
Cutting ties with your parents, especially your mom, is so ripe for research. It touches on psychology, mental health, trauma. But practically no one has studied it, partly because it just goes so unspoken. Yeah, you know, estrangement sounds like such a formal term, but it's not a legal designation like emancipation. But because it revolves around adult parent-child relationships— It's kind of tough to track, you know, because once we're grown-ass adults, (laughs) technically these are voluntary relationships. Yeah, and I mean, one thing Harriet also emphasizes is how estrangement encompasses a whole spectrum of situations. You know, geographical distance, emotional distancing, or completely calling it quits, which is what we're focusing on today. Could you give us an example of sort of that line between just standard parent-child conflict that's going to happen and actual, like, boundary-crossing problems that tend to lead to estrangement? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I can speak to it from my experience, but also having interviewed 50 or 60 other people who have been through estrangement, the stories are often very, I mean, the details sometimes are different, but the the basic pattern of the story is often the same, and that is that there is some fundamental lack of ability to trust in the relationship, you know, and whether that comes from way, way back in the relationship or whether it's something that uh, sort of enters it. I mean, most of the time there's something that's really wrong and there's something that's really been wrong for a long time. Um, And so, you know, in a sort of non-estranged, quote, ordinary family, of course there's going to be conflicts and of course there's going to be problems, but you have the ability to get past them because there is this fundamental trust and a sort of mutual understanding that, you know, we might disagree, but I have your best interests in mind and I know you have mine. In families that have estrangement, that seems to be missing. There's not that sense of, like, unconditional love, trust. Um, So often there's just this sense of, like, it's not just this one thing that you did. It's everything that has gone into our relationship. It's it's the pattern of things, you know. Um, It's this sense that you're always saying things that are meant to cut me down. You are always, you know, violating my whatever privacy, my boundaries, whatever. And very, very often there's substance abuse or mental health issues involved um, or alcoholism. Those have been features in a lot of the stories I've heard, too. So what are some estrangement myths that need busting in your mind? Ooh, there are a lot of them. (laughs) Um, One of the most pervasive myths is this idea that kids today, they're spoiled. They get mad because mom and dad didn't give them a Porsche for their high school graduation or they didn't like something that one parent did one day. And so they walk off in a huff and it's a tragedy and everybody suffers. Um, In other words, this idea that people walk away from their families in a very casual way. And that is not, that is just not true. What the research suggests and what my own experience suggests is that walking away from your family is so complicated and it goes against so many social norms and uh, prohibitions that it really takes a lot to make people do that. And so 
It might look like there's one incident that make people walk away, but in fact, there's always, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of things that have happened and gone on over a long period of time. So that's one. And then I guess the other big myth, to my mind, is this idea that family estrangement is always a bad thing, that it's always something that we should be trying to fix. For some people, walking away from family is not just a good idea, it's a survival tactic. Obviously, we have a lot of biological and cultural imperatives that keep us connected to families, and there's good reasons for that, right? But sometimes it just isn't meant to work, and sometimes to protect yourself, you just got to walk away. Yeah, one thing that I was also curious about as I was reading about you and Shadow Daughter is our cultural idea of love. And that if you decide that you need to sever these kinds of close family bonds, that the problem must be with you and that you are not loving them enough and that love must be the answer. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, completely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that part of our sort of hallmark Disney, you know, idea of um, love in this culture, or at least the way we, we like to talk about it publicly, right? Like, love conquers all. Blood is thicker than water. Like, fill in the blank. There's so many of those platitudes. Sometimes, though, I would argue that sometimes love is walking away, you know, and that you can love someone. And a lot of the people I've talked to about this say, I love my family, but. I can't, you know, be in contact with them. So, yeah, it all depends on what we mean by love. You know, does love mean being a doormat? Does love mean putting everyone else's interests before yours? Does love mean, you know, like in my case, uh, every interaction I had with my family over a long, long period of many years would, would make me feel literally sick, anxious, depressed, you know, get in bed and not be able to get out for a week kind of thing. And at a certain point, you're like, hmm, I know that I'm still connected to them and I have feelings about them, but I can't really keep going through this. Yeah, we have messed up ideas of love, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also wonder why why do you think that culturally we are way more comfortable acknowledging, like, divorce, breakups, like, family dysfunction, those things happen— so why is this, though, still so shrouded in silence, it seems like? I think it's because it violates these extremely primal uh, taboos that we have. You know, like the the sanctity of the family, if you want to use that term, like the, the sort of family as the emotional and literal building block of our culture. If that gets threatened, that threatens a lot of things that are built on that. So... There's these, like, strong biological imperatives to stay connected with your family. Um, and there's a lot of logistical and practical reasons, too, right? So when there is an estrangement, all kinds of stuff falls apart around it. Everything from how do you celebrate holidays and sort of, you know, landmarks, both happy and sad, and then, you know, ranging up to, like, who's going to take care of mom and dad when they're old and sick if you're estranged. So there's all these sort of um, cultural functions that the family serves, and estrangement breaks that. So there's that. And then I also think there's this 
weight of public opinion that's like if you're if you walk away from your family what does that mean about me and my family like there's this level on which it seems really really threatening to everyone else and i i i'm guessing that does come from that sort of those cultural and biological imperatives you know that that's that's the way that we are designed to keep these relationships intact even when they're really challenging is reconciliation ever the goal of estrangement? Well, I think it's always the goal to some people, right? I think it's there's a lot of good reasons for families to uh, forgive each other and be able to go forward and stay connected. It's just that it's not always possible. But I think reconciliation is the assumption in our culture, just like like family togetherness is the assumption. And okay, if you have some problems, you need to work them out. It's like this cavalcade of platitudes that comes at you when you're in that situation, like, why can't you just get along with your mother? Or you only have one mother, you're going to regret it, you know, or how will you feel when she dies? Like, there's all these interesting ways that pressure is brought to bear. Like, boy, if I had a nickel for every time someone said to me, why can't you just get along with your mother? Like, I'd be a freaking millionaire. <laughs> um <laughs> I could run for president, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Stop asking me to get along with my mother is something, Caroline. I I would love to see sewn on a pillow at Home Goods, please. (laughs) I'd have to hide that pillow, though, from my mother. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Harriet's one regret about breaking up with her mom. Plus, why daughters bear the brunt of parental estrangement. Stick around. I do remember somewhere in childhood becoming aware that, like, other people talked about their mothers in a way that seemed very weird to me. Like, this idea that you would go to your mother for comfort just seemed bizarre to me, which, you know, as I say that out loud, sounds very telling, and it is. But, um, yeah, there was this idea that, like, why would you ever go to your mother for comforting? (laughs) We're back with Harriet Brown. I don't ever remember feeling loved by my mother, which is, you know, as I say that, I now want to add in a rush, that's a horrible thing to say about your mother, which is, you know, the social part of me, like, acknowledging that this goes against so many taboos. But, um, you know, we never had a good relationship. I don't ever remember feeling like safe or loved or seen by her in some fundamental way. I never felt like she liked me, like the person I was. I mean, literally, I can't remember a time when I didn't feel it. For Harriet, the way her mom treated her kept her in a constant state of cognitive dissonance. That uneasy feeling as if your brain can't quite process what's actually happening. Like when someone's words don't match up with their actions. My mother would say constantly, I love you so much. Oh, I just love you, love you, love you. You know, all I ever wanted was to love you. Like she was all about the love in her talking. But, And I used to 
wonder, like, why don't I feel loved by her? And it took me such a long time to be able to sort of step back enough to say, oh, it's because she did X or Y. Like, these things don't actually match up with what she's saying. Um, and I think it's just because as a kid, you it's so hard to to think critically about your own parents. I mean, you know, I felt like I was so old before I was able to separate what people say from what they do. I think it's still something I struggle with, honestly, because, you know, I was just so used to hearing what my mother said and and sort of taking that as the gospel and s- suppressing my own observations of what was actually happening, not trusting it. Harriet and her mom fought regularly, and it's not like she grew out of that dynamic as she got older. Like, even an innocuous email or text from her mom could send Harriet spiraling. And sometimes the animosity was in-your-face obvious. In your book, you write about the night before your grandmother's funeral. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah. So my grandmother um, died when I was, I mean, I was old. I was 30. Um, I was a grown-up. But she, she was so much like a mother to me, you know, and we didn't really see it coming, even though she'd been sick. So it was this kind of shocking thing. The family had gathered at my parents' house in New Jersey the, the night before the funeral, and people were sitting around telling stories, and there was a lot of, you know, just warm feeling and along with the grieving. And, uh, you know, I noticed my mother kind of holding herself separate from it in a, in a way. She was you know, serving people food and everything. And um, and then at one point I went down into the basement to look for some old pictures of my grandmother for this, like, board we were going to make for the funeral. And I just sat down there and was just, like, howling and crying and just feeling terribly sad. And my mother came downstairs, and I thought for a minute, like, she was going to comfort me. And, she, and And this is kind of an example of that cognitive dissonance. So she sits down next to me. She puts her face really close to mine. And she says, you know, basically, um, you don't have your grandmother here to hold your hand anymore. Now you're going to have to deal with me. Ugh. And she just says it like that. And then she gets up and walks upstairs, you know, and then I'm like, and that's what, you know, that cognitive dissonance, like, wait, what just happened? Like, she acted like she was comforting me, but that's not actually what she did, and that's not actually what she said. And uh, I came to understand a little bit more that she was a very damaged person, and I came to be able to feel some compassion for her as that damaged person. But she had the capacity to be truly vicious, (laughs) so that was kind of a problem. Before cutting her mom off entirely, Harriet took a low-contact approach. She tried distancing herself, like only communicating via email for a few months. And when the tensions would ease, she'd get hopeful and try to reconcile. But once back in regular contact, the relationship would implode and the cycle would start all over again. Their boundaries were just always in flux. Christina Sharp, the researcher, calls it like a period of chaotic dissociation, where you're kind of like flailing around and bouncing between, like, trying to make things work and then, you know, huffing off when things don't work and being upset and there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of chaos. And then you kind of just hit this point where you're like, I can't, I can't live with this anymore. 
Estrangement usually involves a last straw moment, you know, the the breaking point where you can't take anymore and decide to go no contact for good. And to be clear, it's not an all-of-a-sudden snap judgment. Yeah, the last straw generally happens after you've spent years trying to make the relationship work. For Harriet, that moment arrived when she was 50 and had two daughters of her own. It came pretty late, you know, after decades of this kind of back and forth Um, But the situation was my older daughter had been very ill with anorexia as a young teenager and then had sort of recovered. But when she was 18, she had a relapse. And that was the sort of situation that my husband and I were dealing with. It was very scary. It was very serious. It was, you know, very distressing, obviously. And during this time, my mother and I were not like, in close contact. We weren't talking much, but she started emailing me and sending me these emails that said, like, remember, you have a family. You know, we're here to help you. Like, lean on us for support. Like, she clearly wanted to be involved in some way. And I hadn't leaned on her in any way in decades. So, Um, but, you know, as happened a lot in our relationship, I thought, well, maybe this is the opportunity, you know, maybe this is the time that will be different. Maybe she won't, you know, like Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. Maybe that won't happen this time. Maybe she really <laughs> wants to help, and she's telling me that, and if I if I reject that, then then this is my fault, you know, so I should try. So Harriet wrote her mom back and was like, you know, I could use your help with something. She asked her mom to put together a list of high-calorie recipes, thinking, you know, if she does it, great. If not, at least I tried. No big deal. And literally, like, within half an hour, I got an email back from her, and the subject line was, like, some things I've been meaning to tell you. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, you never want to open that email. And the email basically said, I've been holding on to these things, I— but I feel that it wouldn't be fair to you to not share with you exactly what I think, which was so much my mother's MO over the years. Um, and basically what she said was, don't you think it's interesting that your daughter is sick, uh, that she does not like her own body, and yet you are a writer and, you know, you write and research about body image and weight. Like, don't you think it's interesting? <laughs> like, don't you think there's a connection there? And then she it kind of went on to say, like, No one else will say this to you because they're all afraid of you because you are a formidable woman, my dear. I I remember that phrase very distinctly. Um, But, you know, I'm the only one who will tell you this because I love you. But I think you should look at this. Like, basically, she was saying, this is your fault. (laughs) It's your fault that your daughter is sick. And, you know, you should take some ownership of this. And... I literally just heard this, like, cracking sound. I thought I was hallucinating. I mean, I really thought I was losing my mind. And it was like like a crack of thunder, and it was just this moment. And I, I was like, you know what? There is nothing left in me at all that wants anything to do with her. This is it. It was just like she had died and was dead, and I felt nothing. And, and that was the end. That was the end of our relationship. I wrote her back and said, we're done. And that was it, you know? And people often said, like, well, did you have any regrets? And 
honestly, my only regret is I didn't do that like 30 years earlier and save us all like so much grief and angst because nothing ever got better, nothing changed. And I just couldn't, I, yeah, I just couldn't. Did anything surprise you about how you felt or your experience once you went no contact, once you made that decision? I think I was surprised by what a relief it was because I'd certainly Mm -hmm. gone for months in the past not speaking to her. But it had never had that sense of permanence and finality. And, you know, my mother did die three years later, but she was young when she died. She was 76, and there was no expectation that, you know, her life was coming to an end or anything. So I anticipated 20 more years of her being alive and us not being in touch. But it was just like, wow, this is, I wish, I really wish I had done this so much earlier because it just, it took like this massive level of drama just right out of my life. I don't have to feel anxious when the phone rings. I don't have to worry. I don't have to lose sleep. I don't have to, you know, have panic attacks for days at a time. I'm just, I know that I'm, I'm, I felt like I was safe from her for the first time. And and that made me realize how unsafe I had felt for my entire life, even though on the surface that was ridiculous, right? I was, like, long been an adult, have my own kids. You know, she there's nothing, there was nothing she could do to me, but I still felt very threatened by her. So, so yeah, it was a feeling of safety and relief. Harriet felt so safe in her decision that when her mother died, she didn't attend the funeral. She knew she'd catch hell from some family members, and she did. But going would have been an act, and Harriet had retired from that performance. Culturally, that is such a violation of the dutiful daughter role. And the limited research there is suggests that gender does seem to play some role in estrangement. One of the most cited studies from 2015 found that more adult children were estranged from their mothers instead of their fathers— And more parents said they were estranged from daughters than from sons. And just as in Harriet's case, when it comes to maternal estrangement, it's more likely to be off and on rather than cut and dry. Yeah, I mean, that pressure to stay connected to the family we're born into is super intense. Not to mention the expectation of maintaining a tight mother-daughter bond. Like, only a supposedly bad daughter would cut herself off from her mother. It's a very gendered issue, right? And so in my research, I I was able to talk to a couple of guys who estranged from their families. And they did not, first of all, they did not have anywhere near the level of angst about it as any of the women that I talked to or myself. So I think, you know, as women, we are socialized to be the glue that holds families and other cultural groups together. We're supposed to be the fixers. We're supposed to be the peacemakers. Also, this sense of our identities as loving and forgiving and, you know, conciliatory, that's all so important in the way that we are raised to think of ourselves and that and what culture expects from us. So, When you make the decision to estrange from your family, you're violating all that, in addition to violating all of the sort of norms around family should be together. So, like, the the guys that I interviewed, there was much more this air of, like, look, this is what happened, and I just had to do it, you know, and that's just kind of how it is. 
Whereas I don't know a single woman <laughs> who feels that way. And I know um, for myself, like, in a decades-long estrangement from my mother and therefore from other people in the family, I don't even know how many thousands of hours I spent, like, in self-recrimination and self-doubt and feeling like there was something deeply wrong with me because I couldn't maintain this relationship with my mother. So I think it's a hugely gendered thing, um, and I think that that's both, uh, you know, that that's, that's cultural, right? That's what we expect of ourselves and what everyone expects of us. Caroline, I'd also say that, like, white American culture idealizes, like, Gilmore Girls-level closeness. But for first-generation daughters, like our next guest, Jackie, that kind of maternal intimacy can feel especially foreign. And we're going to find out why after a quick break. When I moved away from home and, like, didn't go back for the holidays or anything, I felt like I was a terrible person because, like, I was I was failing to meet these expectations. I wasn't being, like, a good Asian daughter. We're back with Jackie Sajiko, a producer who works at our podcast network Stitcher out in San Francisco. And even though Jackie and Harriet come from very different families, similar dynamics and dysfunctions led to their eventual estrangements. Um, so growing up, my relationship with my parents was pretty difficult. We had a really hard time talking, and, like, there weren't a ton of boundaries um, with my parents. I felt like it was really hard to, like, say no to them uh, with, like, what they expected from me. Jackie grew up in the South with her Filipino mom and Chinese dad, as well as a little brother. So I was raised to be, like, very obedient and, like, quiet. I was expected to take care of everyone in my family. And also some of this is like being the kid of like my parents immigrated here. So I'm a first generation immigrant, I think. Um, and so I was expected to kind of like, not exactly translate, but like handle some stuff that they didn't know how to do or like were, was just different for them. So I like took on a lot of like responsibility of like running the household at a like pretty young age. Jackie's mom worked a lot, so she often wasn't home for long stretches at a time. Her brother also has Down syndrome, and Jackie was expected to help parent not only him, but also to some extent her dad, who'd had a stroke and couldn't work. My dad had kind of a really bad temper. Whenever he got mad at me, my mom wasn't around to, like, soothe me or, like, be there. I ended up having to, like, comfort myself a lot and, like, deal with my dad and, like, have these major fights with him. There wasn't really anyone I could talk to about it, so, like, it was kind of just, like, me. And I had to, like, learn how to do that. And it turns out that that's hard. <laughs> I, like, still am, like, figuring out how to, like, regulate my emotions now as, like, a 30-year-old. When Jackie was 18, she left for college. She kept her visits home to a minimum and talked to her parents on the phone every once in a while. She sustained this low-contact situation for years, which was harder than it probably sounds. Yeah, like, ever since I left home, I felt like I've been a bad daughter. And, like, I spent a long time thinking about, like, whether that's true <laughs> or not. Um, I think some of it also, like, I, my parents put, like, a lot of expectation on me to be, like, a very specific kind of daughter. And I think some of that has to do with, like, the fact that 
so I'm Chinese and Filipino, and there's like a lot of expectation of like family piety and loyalty, and like you are always there to take care of your parents forever, <laughs> kind of thing. And like I didn't know like how else to be a an Asian, a good Asian daughter, or like a good daughter, or a good person, because the that like those were the things that they had taught me, made me a good person. And I think it wasn't until probably like my late twenties that like I started feeling like this is I'm not a bad person. Like I just have like a different. I need to have a different kind of relationship with my family. Three years ago, Jackie had her own last straw moment. Her mom went to the Philippines for a few weeks, leaving her dad alone at home without a caregiver. Jackie found out when one of her parents' neighbors on the opposite coast from Jackie's home in California emailed her worried about her dad. Jackie was furious with her mom. We had like a a fight about whether it was my responsibility to come home, basically. And I think I was like mad that like she expected me to go to like drop everything and come home. Um, So I blocked her number, but then I like felt guilty about it for like a couple years and then I started going to therapy and when I explained what had happened she was like have you ever considered using the word estrangement for what your relationship is with your parents and I hadn't and do you remember how that made you feel in that moment yes (laughs) I (laughs) cried uh and (laughs) because I think it felt right but it also felt really scary because I think in my head I was like estrangement is like a huge step that you take when you like totally cut off your family or it was like a really dramatic thing the way I'd been thinking about it um so I was like relieved and terrified um that she called it that first and then I felt like more comfortable with it because we talked and we were I was talking with her about it and she was saying like it doesn't have to be permanent like you could be like estranged right now and maybe in a few years you decide Maybe you do want to try getting in contact again, but, like, it doesn't have to be a permanent thing. Like, that felt comfortable and, and like, good. Like, it felt nice to be in control a little bit. Jackie went on to marry her college sweetheart, and she really feels like part of his family. But when she and her husband began talking about having kids of their own, Jackie's estrangement loomed large. When I was a kid, I I was, like, I expected to have kids. Like, I expected I would become a parent. But as I got older, I got increasingly nervous about, like, what kind of parent I would be because, like, I had such a difficult relationship with my parents. I was estranged from them. And, like, I was terrified of becoming my parents. And so for a really long time, I simultaneously wanted to have kids but also didn't because I thought I would be, like, a really bad parent. It wasn't until I was, like, probably, like, a year or two ago that I was, like, maybe I won't be a bad parent. (laughs) But only maybe because through the whole pregnancy, I was like, what if I'm still like that? Like, it was like a fear that was like topmost of my mind the entire time. So Jackie's dad died at the end of 2019, and she considered not telling her mom about the pregnancy. But she eventually decided to sort of split the difference and fill her in over email. So we emailed back and forth about it for a little bit. She wanted to come out for the birth, um, and I... Did not want that. (laughs) Um, I ended up telling her I didn't want her to come out. And I also was like, I actually would also like to not be in contact right now. And I told her that I was like talking to a therapist and that I wanted to like not 
yeah, I just went, I didn't want to be in regular contact because like I was working through some stuff, um, which I think was the first time I ever told her about any, <laughs> any of the like problems that I was having or like acknowledging like the fact that we had a difficult relationship. So how did she respond? She like didn't acknowledge it. <laughs> she was like, oh, okay. She acknowledged the thing about like not wanting me, not wanting her to come out. And then she was like, cool about therapy. Bye. <laughs> it's like, great. Um, oh, wow. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but also like, I think that was the first time either of us had ever directly acknowledged it. And so like, maybe she just like, wasn't really ready to talk about it, which is fair. Cause like it took me until I was like 32. <laughs> it also felt like very um, characteristic of like the, the whole way we'd, we like don't talk about difficult things essentially. So it wasn't, totally unexpected it was a little like weird and like I still think about it obviously (laughs) but yeah yeah I mean I think it's okay to say that that's a little weird (laughs) (laughs) thanks yeah (laughs) it was like very after it happened I was like is this weird or not weird and I had to like ask other people because like I was so bad at judging (laughs) whether or not this was like a normal or not normal thing last year Jackie gave birth to her baby Doris since Doris's father is white and her Asian grandmother isn't in the picture, Jackie's also been building a new branch of the family tree. I have a really close friend from college who is who's Chinese American, and I think, like one knowing him and knowing this person who's like a really close friend of mine, um, and having him be a part of her life, but also like we want to make sure she like we like live in a place where she can see people who look like her, even if they're not related to her. But, like, we want to live in a community where, like, that's a diverse community, but also, like, there are Asian people here. Like, I grew up in a really white part of the country, and it sucked for me because, like, I didn't really see other Asian kids. I'm really close with my in-laws, and, like, they... And they're great, but, like, I'm really mindful of the fact that, like, I want to make sure that she grows up around people who look like her and who, like, don't just reflect, like, the white side of her family, basically. Um, who I love, but also like I like I want to make sure she feels like fully seen. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about that that feeling, that desire, like to be seen, to like have her actually grow up as seeing other Asian people? Yeah, like I, I think like some of it is like I think I have a lot of hangups about like growing up as like one of the few Asian kids. Uh, where I was, I have a lot of hangups about, like, I don't speak Chinese or Tagalog, and I don't, I have, like, a really, like, tenuous connection with, like, my own family's culture. I guess I always used to feel like I didn't, I was, like, I didn't quite belong. I wasn't, like, totally Asian enough, and I I clearly wasn't white, so, like, where, where did I belong? And I, like, I worry about my kid feeling that way, too. So... I mean, I feel like being in the Bay Area is, like, nice because there are a lot of people who look like her. And there's, like, a huge, like, Chinese and Filipino community here um, that, like, we can be a part of and that she can, like, see some of herself in also. And, like, learn about, like, I don't know, like, I never learned about, like, the Asian immigrant history. So, like, there's a part of me that, like, wants to have her feel connected to that, like, even if she doesn't know my family like that she feels like connected to like at least like the Asian American community in the like here like in general 
um, like, I feel like I want to like be able to give her that at least, even if she can't have a connection to like her immediate family or my immediate family. (laughs) Once you had your daughter, did those feelings or have those feelings um, and those fears sort of uh, faded at all? Yeah, they have. I realized I didn't have expectations the way that like my my parents did with me. And like I thought, I think I realized that I was thinking about her really differently than what I was always afraid of. Like I kind of like saw the version of myself that I was afraid of being. And I saw myself like being a parent with her as a newborn and was like, oh, these are not the same person. I'm not doing that. So Jackie, how do you hope to raise little Doris? I I hope that she's like feels taken care of and like safe and that she's independent and like can like feels like she doesn't have to be responsible for like my happiness that she's just like an independent her own person I want her to be her own person who like likes what she likes and like that I respect her for like being who she is and doing what she wants and that I'm I'm like genuinely happy for like whatever she wants to do and like whoever she turns out to be and yeah I'm like really excited to see like who she becomes <laughs> I'm really happy about it <laughs> oh, you're her mom I think it's allowed I know <laughs> Okay, and ladies, does the estrangement spectrum ring familiar to you? Have you had to cut off contact with a parent or family member? Email us at hello at unladylike.co, find us on social at unladylike media, or join our private Facebook group and jump into the thread for this episode. Visit unladylike.co to find this episode's sources and transcript. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly dose of desperately needed, actually good news. And hopefully some actually good news for listeners. If you go over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia, you can find brand new ad-free extra unladylike bonus episodes. We're going to be trying to put out some more during this time of quarantine. (laughs) So head over again to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. And thanks to everyone who subscribed so far. Nora Ritchie is the producer of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger. And Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week... I call it addictive because I legitimately cannot function without them. Like, I had my nails off for all of a day, and I was like, this is the ghettoest shit I've ever experienced in my whole entire life. Never again will I ever, ever, ever do this to myself. Like, I was like, I cannot ever, ever, ever go without my nails. We're talking to Timby Dentonhurst about her love affair with acrylics, and we're going deep on the history of Vietnamese nail salons and the women who changed the nail industry forever. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike so you don't miss this episode. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. If mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. I don't know why. I just pictured like a small barefoot boy saying that. Well, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody. Oh, Lord. Stitcher. 